Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity and the privilege to come together and to talk about gardening and the role that it plays in family and the blessing it is to children to be raised in a garden. And Lord, I just pray that as I share, that you would speak through me, that you would um, put the words in my mouth that would be a blessing to the hearers. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I wished that when I was in Caroline or Sherry's shoes with little ones, that I had had a bigger vision of the blessings of growing children in the garden. And so I stand before you as someone who has grown children in the garden and didn't always see it as a huge blessing. I always knew it was a blessing, but I didn't have the full picture as much as I do today. And so um, that's just a little bit about me. Here's mostly uh, the children that I grew in the garden. Um, our family is comprised of myself and my husband, John. We have one daughter. She looks like the youngest, but she's actually the oldest. Um, she's married to Nick Connect, standing behind her. And then we have Jonathan, who's next to me. And next to him, Jonathan has Farmer's Friend, um, which is a wonderful business supporting farmers today. Um, Joshua is our farmer. He's farming full-time with us. In fact, right now he's doing all our winter production. Um, next to him is Zach. He's our technology man. I mean, he got me all set up. He let me use his computer. Um, but he's into small engine repair. And in front is our caboose, Caleb, who is 14, and he's a lover of the out-of-doors and a lover of woodworking. He is very gifted at that. And as it would appear, our family is growing. And isn't it nice? There's a few extra girls that are appearing in the pictures. That really warms my heart. So Joshua on the right is going to be marrying Kelly Connect on June 10, who is sister to my son-in-law. <laughs> so the family's not spreading that much. And Jonathan also has a special friend. So that's a little bit about us. So I want to share with you this quote. Fathers and mothers, let your children learn from the flowers. Take them with you into the garden and field and under the leafy tree and teach them to read in nature the message of God's love. Let thoughts of him be linked with bird and flower and tree. Lead the children to see in every pleasant and beautiful thing an expression of God's love for them. Recommend your religion to them by its pleasantness. Let the law of kindness be in your lips. So the part I want you to take note of is teach them to read in nature the message of God's love. Now, just want to encourage those who are coming in, if you would come to the center part. This is a very wide room. Um, so how many of you, when you're in nature, have disciplined your mind to actually see the messages of God's love? Good for you. It's not easy. 
I'm just going to be honest. When I'm in the garden, I'm a pretty driven person and I'm a pretty focused person and I'm a very task-oriented person. So when I'm in the garden, I'm thinking, we're here to weed. And that's what I see and that's what, you know, how fast can we get to the end of the row? So for me, it has taken a little bit of discipline to train the mind um, to read in nature the message of God's love. So now I'm going to give you a little bit of a, an opportunity. Okay. I want to ask you, what message of love do you see in that picture? What message of God's love do you see? Do you know what that is? Pardon? It's a weed. It's a weed. But you know what Mrs. White says on every spire of grass? We can learn something about God's love for us. So I want to, I'll just repeat, but any brave soul who could throw out an idea of what we could learn as a message from God. Okay, Sherry will take. Very good. So in this picture of a weed that is really about ready to cast all of those weed seeds, she's thinking of it as, huh, wow, that's how God's love is transferred. Now, that would be a wonderful thing to teach your children in the garden. But most of us look at that and think, oh no, this thing is going to go to seed. And do you know what all these seeds, you know what, there's a saying in farming, one year's seeding is seven years weeding. That is a true statement. One year's seeding is seven years, I mean, one year's seeding is seven years weeding. So we can look at that, and for those of us who, like, grow things for a living, we can look at that weed and be very quick to see the seeding part of it and not the God's love spreading. Okay, one more. When I look at it, it's really hard to express what I see. Okay. Um, it's God's tenderness, love, and little signs that we okay. can see that uh, delicacy. Yes. Uh, his character traits are there. Okay, so the, the picture has a... It, it's, I don't know what kind of weed it is, but it's just a weed, and it has all these little seeds, all these little hairs. And because it's backlit, those hairs are looking very golden and beautiful, aren't they? Which is a representation of the, the fine beauty of God's character. Very good. We're going to skip through because we're not going to have time for all of them, but I have a couple that I want to. What about this one? Not that one. This one on the bottom here. Does anyone know what that is? Pardon? It's, I think that it's a, a kind of arugula, a red, but I'm not positive actually. I'm, I'm a cedar, but I'm not, the, I'm not always the brains behind it. But I thought that was an interesting picture. What could we take away about God's love from that leaf that has these veins of red? Did I hear someone? Life is in the blood. Okay. Any other thoughts? Whose life is in the blood? Do we need to be like that leaf? If we don't have Christ's blood flowing through the veins in our body, we can never 
produce any good fruit for the kingdom. So one more. I could do this all day because to me, this is just where it's at. Look at that neat. Can you see what that is? I want to hear from a child. What is that picture? Two carrots. Does it look like two carrots? Why? They're just twisted around each other. Now, I want to hear this time from a child. What can we learn about God's love for us or his character from that picture of those carrots? Any child brave enough to, to share a thought? I know there's some adults who could quickly... It's terrible to put children on a spot. It takes a very gregarious and outgoing child to be put on the spot. And, yeah, and my children would have melted under the seat, so I don't know why I even put kids there. Okay, so let's hear from the adults. What can we learn about God's love for us or his character from those two carrots that are so perfectly entwined? It's all-encompassing. His love wraps around us. If we abide in the vine, it's more than just being connected. All right. Here's another quote. Let the mother take her children with her into the field or garden, and from the things of nature, draw lessons that will point them to nature's God and aid them in the struggle against evil. Do you want to aid your children in the struggle against evil? Get them in the garden. And while you're there, don't forget that you're there to learn about God's love. And this is not just for children. This is for all of us. But this is specifically about children. So, theory is wonderful and good, but I just want to bring it right down to the practical, and I hope we'll have a few minutes at the end to, if you have any questions or any thoughts. So, we're going to start. When would you start? And I, I would say you start when you're pregnant. I would say you start before you're pregnant, but because this is about children, I'm going to say start when you're pregnant. Why? Because it's a way of life. If you don't have this way of life in place when you're pregnant, what are the chances that when you have a newborn, you're going to be in the garden? No, you're going to be thinking, oh, I don't have time for that. Oh, they need their nap. They need this. They need that. No. Start when you're pregnant. When you're in the garden focusing on God's love, that feeling of love that you feel from the Lord is going to just transmit to that baby. Um, you want them to be comfortable in the garden before they're born and then after they're born. Ha! Whoever thought of nap time in the garden? Well, I did. A blanket under a tree. I was a big believer that children should learn to sleep in many different scenarios, that sleep should not be um, regimented to a bed in a dark room. If you teach a child to sleep with noise or in varied circumstances, they're going to be really good sleepers. So I would often, I mean, a blanket under the tree worked well. I would often take, um, I had the, you know, the little car seat carriers when they're infants, and I would just take it and sit it in the garden, and I'd talk to them while I would work, or, you know. And our first two, let me say this, my raising children in the garden really started um, when my oldest two were about 
maybe two and four. Um, so we didn't, we had gardens, but not as much when, when the first two, when I was pregnant with them, we didn't have a garden. Um, so nap times can be in the garden. Toddlers are helpers in training. Toddlers are helpers in training. You might think they're not doing anything to help you, and you know what? They might not be doing anything to help you. In fact, they might be doing something to hinder your work. But you have to think long term. You have to think this is an investment. You know, if we thought of it like money, you know, people put their money in and they invest their money. Well, do they see that money grow overnight? Not usually. Not usually. Usually investments take a long time to mature. Well, children take a long time to mature. It's, a, it's an investment. So working toys. I mean, this was easy for us because we had boys. So trucks, but even our daughter loved the trucks. Not only does it provide work, but it provides play when they can have a break from work. And so the same thing that provides play is something that can help them work. Do you see then the connection that play and work are not that far apart? Um, this picture is our youngest, Caleb, and he has in the back of his little gator two pints of strawberries. Now, when we come to the, from the field carrying strawberries, we carry a minimum of 16 pints. Um, so it would be easy to say, well, this is not going to do any good, and he's going to run over a rock, and those strawberries are going to be bruised. You know, sometimes the strawberries he would bring from the field would just have to go into the seconds bin. But he didn't know that. I didn't tell him, oh, you ruined these berries. Um, so where, wherever you can. So there are three, I'm going to propose that there are three stages. One is involvement. Involvement grows to responsibility, and responsibility grows to privilege. Now, we didn't exactly probably do it as I would do it if we were just a home garden, you know, because we were market gardening, and it's a little bit different. Um, but it's not all that different. So in the first stage, it's all about involvement. Well, that starts when they're really young, like that picture of Caleb carrying those two pints of strawberries. That's involvement. You're involving them in what you're doing. So one way you can involve them when they're big enough to handle a tool is get them their own tools. And don't get them toy tools. I mean, there are good tools out there for children with wooden handles and metal heads. Our kids, we had a little shovel, a little hoe, a little rake. Um, I don't remember if we had a wheelbarrow, but I've seen little metal wheelbarrows. Um, so get your children tools that are appropriate to the trade. Get them in the garden, get them their own tools, and then teach them the proper care of tools. Teach them that those tools have a place, that they need to be put in that place, and that they should be put away clean. You don't put your tools away covered with dirt. You put them away clean so that they're ready to use the next time. Not that we did all these perfectly. Let me just interject that it's a learning curve. And I was just in, in the leaning and efficiency class, which I love that topic. And um, I wished we had known and, and had a little bit more input on those things early on. But it's a process you grow. 
and today we put our tools away clean. <laughs> All right. Involve them in every part of the process. So you don't just say, okay, come and, and seed. That's the fun part, you know. But there's seeding, and there's weeding, and there's pruning, and there's harvesting, um, and there's planting. So this is a picture of John with our two younger ones, Zach and Caleb. And, you know, we would set it out. And again, you know, Caleb was probably about maybe three in that picture. But, you know, old enough and big enough to plant. And you might have to come back behind and do a little bit to help. And, and that row is not 10 feet long. That row was probably 150 feet long. So, you know, you're talking about... And we would say, when you get done... When we finish this row, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. So, um, involve them in every part of the process. You want to work together. This is not a stage when you say, go to the garden and weed. Landon, go to the garden and weed. It doesn't work that way, does it? <laughs> no, it doesn't. You have to be there with them. You get down, and not only are you then working with them, but that is your opportunity to talk. That is your opportunity to teach them, hey, what do you think that this, you know, this means? What can we learn from God's love from this? And there's other things that happen there that I'm not going to mention in this class. I'm going to mention in the one that the original classroom, okay? This is the original classroom, and we need to leverage it for everything we can academically. So when you work with your children, you have a tremendous opportunity to tie their heartstrings. And I can tell you that we have a lot of happy memories of just working with our kids in the garden. And it's been, as our farm has changed and we have had many more people, apprentices with us working. We have kind of lost that opportunity to work so much one-on-one. -on -one. But so thankful that when our kids were little, that's how it was. You know, that change didn't happen until they were in their teens. And so, you know, you just have to recognize these young years are so precious. And they go so fast. And the garden is the most wonderful place. You know, I'm not, I was not one who had the ability to be a, a mom who took her kids to the park to play, or took her kids to the library, or took her kids to the zoo, or took her kids to, you know, all these fun things that many moms do today. This was our fun. This, I didn't have the money to do those things. I did not have the time to do those things. And at times I felt deprived and neglected. Shame, because God's ways are so much better. And I can tell you from where I stand, the best place to have your children is in the garden. It, it's free. It's work. It's play. You teach them industry. You teach them orderliness. You teach them all of these things that are going to make them amazing adults. 
that you and others will enjoy. So, it's a time, the involvement stage should not just be like when they're little. It should extend into as long as it can. But they do grow to be more responsible. Parents, it will pay to expend a small sum yearly in purchasing flower seeds and shrubs. We have purchased these of James Vick's, Vick Rochester, New York, and have felt more than satisfied with the means we thus invested. You should help your children to arrange their gardens tastefully and then assist them in planting their seeds and shrubs. I just want to grab that quote. is not one that I ever read, but this is the compilation that my husband put together, Councils on Agriculture. He took everything back to the original sources. And so we found in that some amazing gems. And I'll say, this is a book that you read from the back first. This quote is taken from a chapter in the back titled, Mrs. White Led by Example. It is the best, I, so inspiring. If you don't know about her gardening practices, you will be shocked. She loved flowers. She loved flower gardening. That was her passion. And even when she was um, older and she had a lot of people working in her home, she had a little plot of ground for each of her secretaries or people who, and they worked their own little gardens. She didn't just preach it. She actually lived it. Um, so that is, you know, I, there's also a section in here on, guard, on the family and agriculture. Inspiring. It's inspired me. I wished I had had that as a resource to be inspired by. You know, you only have so much time. We did a lot of study. Obviously, it was our study that catapulted us and propelled us into agriculture. But there's so much there. I mean, this is a wealth of quotes. And we hadn't begun to scratch the surface when we were, when we were young and starting with our children. So it was very interesting. I, I had to do research then. James Vick. Have you ever heard of that seed company? <laughs> so I wanted to know, wonder what seed company. Is that seed company still in operation? How many of you have ever heard of Burpee Seeds? So they bought James Vick. Um, of Rochester, New York, that seed company back in the early 1900s. So very interesting. Um, we had the privilege of um, being in Australia the end of November for the first agriculture conference there. And my, my one, I'm not a bucket list person, but the one thing I said, I don't care if I do anything else, but I want to go to Sunnyside and I want to see where Mrs. White lived there so fascinating. She was a lover of beauty, the simple, the beautiful, the gardens that would have been in place now, you know, are largely gone, but um, the placement of her house, artistically done. Um, can't, can't help but believe that came from her many hours spent in the garden surrounded by her flowers. So stage two is responsibility. And 
the, I, you noticed I'm not putting any age because that so depends on the child. I have some children that I, I couldn't have sent them to the garden to work in their early teens and thought, and thought they would have stuck to it, you know? And I had, I've had some that at a very young age have been able to really be independent and focused and responsible. So um, it's an age when they're able to, be, to work independently. So that's, that varies. Um, you'd give them their own section of garden. Not to say that this couldn't happen earlier, but I think of it as a time when they're responsible now, they've shown that they can work with you and they've learned enough, now they can be responsible, they can take their own section. Uh, they tend and keep it from seeding it to harvesting. And then I would say, beyond harvesting, there's a lot that happens because beyond harvesting you have preservation. You can't eat it all if you have any size garden. You, you're going to have excess. So you have to figure out something to do with it. And I'm just going to interject right now because um, I don't want to forget. One of the wonderful things you can do with extra produce is take it to your neighbors. If you don't know your neighbors, it is like the open door to getting to know them. And when we have excesses on the farm, often we do it on Sabbath because there is no other time when we would have time. But we pile all our excess boxes in the back of the truck and we sit on the bumper and we drive down to the neighbors and we say, could you all use any fresh produce? And we have neighbors that are extremely deprived and impoverished where we live. And maybe some by their own choices, but the point is, they're in need. And it has been an opening wedge for us. Um, we always go around at Thanksgiving time and, or not Thanksgiving, at Christmas, and sing hymns and give them bread. Well, I just believe because we've had a lot of opening wedges, this year, one of our neighbors met us and said, I have something for you this year. Now, mind you, they have no idea when we're coming. And she had, that day, baked cookies. She had a whole gallon bag of cookies that she was so happy to give us. Something back. Another one of our neighbors, um, whose health is just very, very bad, but we've never been able to kind of hurdle that because you don't just go up to somebody and say, hey, you know, I really have noticed that you could stand to lose a few hundred pounds and you know, i like to help you with that, you know, no. But, but this time when we went around, the wife was on the porch and she just opened her heart to my kids about what they were going through. And, the, and it was all related to health. And it was the opening wedge. Our, our son Joshua, who's a farmer, was able then to say, I would love to bring you some produce every, every week. And his fiance was able to say, I would love to help you do some cooking. So now they've taken food, prepared food to that neighbor. We took that neighbor Christmas dinner. I'm thinking, what are the chances that they're going to enjoy this? Vegan, vegetarian? And they, that's probably words they've never heard. But you know, when you give it, you say, Lord, 
somehow make it pleasing to their taste buds. And he does. He does. What an opportunity to get into people's homes and to minister. Gardening, excess in your garden can be such a, a tool for medical missionary work. Where it is possible, the boys and girls should have a piece of land where they can raise something for market and thus earn means that they can devote to missionary purposes. What a great idea. So I, I read that quote and I had the idea, well, we, have re we really wanted to take a missionary trip as a family to do some mission work. And um, we, I mean, we didn't have money hardly to live. How are we gonna have money to go for a mission trip? And so we decided that the kids were gonna, this year they were gonna each have one full row of strawberries, which was, I don't know, like 800 plants a lot of plants, um, and they were going to tend it, and whatever we earned that year, they were going to use for mission trip. Well, I want to tell you that the strawberry crop did not do well that year, and there was really not anything much earned. I guess maybe we earned, I take that, we did earn a little bit, okay? So then they, they earned a little bit, and... Anyway, that's another story. I don't have time to tell you. <laughs> but they bought a dog. And that we were going to use that dog to multiply the mission money that they had used in gardening because we were going to breed her. Well, that's a sad story. And I, I'll, not, I'll not make everyone weep with me over that story. You can, you can read it in our book and weep in private. <laughs> Very sad situation, but, but did you hear the message this morning? Do we believe? Do we believe that even when things don't go well, that God is at the helm of our ship if we're asking him to be there? So we believe no matter whether things look successful or not. We believe. All right, so the next, the third stage is the young gardener stage. So first you involve them, then you give them more responsibility, and then you give them the privilege of doing their own thing. So, have your own plot. Let them have their own plot. Let them be responsible for the cost of seeding and soil preparation. Make them fully responsible for every part of the process. And then let them earn the full income for their hard work. Now, I, <laughs> we tried this. I mean, it's really almost comical. I, when I think back, it's like, Lord, why? Why? We, we had been through a lot of trials ourselves in trying to earn an income. And at one point, our boys decided that they wanted to grow a crop of sweet corn. And we said, hey, 
that sounds like a great idea. And they bought the seed. They planted half an acre. Not a huge amount, but they were only 12 and 14. This is our older two boys, Jonathan and Joshua. So they planted it. They weeded it. Corn is labor intensive. And that's why we didn't grow it, because it's not a huge, you don't get a huge return from it, and it's a heavy feeder. It takes a lot of soil implements, I mean soil amending. And so anyway, the boys did all the work. And I mean, we were so proud of them. I mean, haven't you been there as parents? You see your kids doing what's right, and they're, they're working hard, and you can just imagine, oh, this is going to be so good. This was actually... Um, I don't know if it was before or after the strawberry thing, actually. Um, but it was around, it was probably around similar time. I just know they were 12 and 14. And, and they worked really, really hard. Well, when the corn started to ripen, excitement grows, right? You can just see it. Oh, wow, the ears were setting and the tassels, and you just know it's going to be good. And we also knew that raccoons really like corn. So now I'm remembering that, that somehow this story is much more related with the dogs. We have a lot of stories, and so sometimes they get intertwined in my mind. So... We didn't have any dogs at that point, but someone had asked us to dog sit for like six or eight months. So we had these two dogs, and they were lazy old dogs. But I didn't know that. I just thought they were nice dogs, and they hung around, and the kids really enjoyed them, and it was all great. Um, so when it got to the point that the corn was getting close to being ripe, the boys had the idea that, well, we better protect our corn. And how are you going to protect it? Well, you're going to have to be out there. So they had this brilliant idea that they would sleep in the corn patch with the dogs. And they would bring the dogs down there so the dogs would keep the critters away. I mean, it sounds like a good plan, doesn't it? I mean... What dog wouldn't be happy to stay up all night keeping the raccoons out of your corn? Well, I mean, we didn't... It was a... It, it was... <laughs> so the first night, the boys fell asleep. And the dogs fell asleep. And they all ended up sleeping together in the back of the truck, I believe. Well, that's no good. But hey, you know, so the next night they were going to do better. And they decided they would get up on watches. And so, you know, they set their alarms and, you know, they, they had it all figured out, as boys are good at. And I think they probably did a watch or two, but then they, they were like the ten virgins who fell asleep. And they slept. And the raccoons came in and made off with their crop. Not all of it, but most of it. And by the second and the third night, there was not much of anything. There was nothing marketable. It broke my heart. 
it broke my heart. I thought, Lord, I've been there myself. It's bad enough to be there yourself. But then when you watch your kids go through, it's like, Lord, why? Why would you let that happen to them? You know, I believe that trials come to children to make them strong. And whether it makes them strong or whether it weakens their faith depends on you. I'm just going to say it just how it is. Parents, if your children's faith is weak, it's your fault for not holding up the standard high. I mean, I could have ruined my kids' faith over and over again if I had allowed them to know the hard things. But when we told them the hard things, we told them from the perspective that God has something he wants to teach us from this. So let me back up and say, that might have been a little hard. I'm, when I say if your children's faith is being ruined, I'm not talking about adult children. I'm not talking about children who are at the age where they can make their own choice. I'm talking about young children. How we handle our trials and how we help them to handle their trials will be a big determining factor as to how, how they will see God and how their faith will grow. Can somebody help me? What time am I supposed to end? 11.45? Okay, we're good then. All right, so it was a fairly devastating lesson to be learned. And it was out of that that we decided we were going to get these ferocious dogs that would tend our crops. And they really have done quite a remarkable job, um, at least one of them that we have, um, because we have a big problem with armadillos. We have a huge problem with armadillos. And our dogs will take them down by the dozens in the spring. And they don't just take them down, they actually do the nice thing of burying them. <laughs> the only problem is sometimes they bury them where you wish they wouldn't, like right in your bed, you just see this big mound. They bury everything. One morning my husband went to uncover the, the, the covers in the greenhouse in one of our hoop houses, it was in the cooler time of year, and here he sees these two legs of a chicken. And they had buried one of our chickens alive. <laughs> Crazy dogs. All right, so those are the three, the three stages. You want to get them involved at the earliest age possible, as soon as they are big enough to do anything. You want to give them responsibilities, and then you want to give them privilege. So here's, here's my final tips on motivation, because um, I can promise you that I've, we've had many a struggle with our five children in the garden trying to motivate to labor, um, especially when they were younger. Once they turn the corner and they see the joy in work, and I promise you that it does come, um, it's totally different. But make it fun. And I'll share with you some of the ways that we made it fun. And I'm going to share with you one that, oh, I feel almost wanted to take it out of mine because of the previous one. You know, we can something better all the time. So we do not believe in competitive sports. We really, you know, our kids will play a few games or whatever, but we have very much steered clear from 
competition, but we used competition in the garden to create an element of fun. Now, maybe it wasn't the best element of fun, and maybe we could think of it a little better. We could think a little better way, but it went something like this. I'm going to beat you to the end of this row. I bet, I bet I will be there before. And they would be like, oh! and they'd be like working so fast. But we always worked as a team because the one who got to the end of the row fast then is obligated to help those who were slower. So it wasn't just you're off the hook, but it's a, you know, one thing about gardening, whether you're a home gardener or a market gardener, speed is important. And you need to instill in your children how to work fast and diligent. And so some, I guess, you know, for me, I just used myself as the marker. Catch me if you can. And they would do their level best. And they were very pleased. They all outpaced me for sure now. But for them, it was like they had reached a certain standard when they could pick the first pail of blueberries instead of me. You know, it, so I would say that it has been an element of fun and it's never been an element of um, what competition usually produces in you. If I had seen any negative repercussions from it, uh, I wouldn't have continued it. But um, just making work fun, telling stories. We told stories. Our daughter, and, and again, I can't say that all her stories were truthful. They might have been, she might have been creating stories as she would go. But for the most part, they were truthful stories. They were fun stories. She would love to tell the boys stories. She would always remember. And this was definitely Kirsten. I, I can tell you about temperaments and personalities, and some children are so bent towards um, storytelling. <laughs> and those kinds of things, and others can't be bothered. They just want to get the work done. Um, playing games. I'll tell you a few games that we played in the last minute. We played a game called Hink Pink. Have you ever heard of it? This is a great educational game. So I'm thinking of, and, and you do a Hink Pink or a Hinky Pinky, or a hinkity pinkity, or a, I don't know what it goes beyond that, but it has to do with syllables. So you think of two words that rhyme. So I'm thinking of a hink pink, and it's a feline. So feline goes with the first word. And the second word, which would have to be a rhyming word with whatever I'm thinking of for feline, feline toboggan. So then you start guessing, okay, what feline toboggan? What could that be? So then they might say, well, what could the feline be? This is a hink. Remember, it's one syllable. Cat. Okay, correct. Um, toboggan, can anybody think of any... Say it again. A toboggan is a sled. That was kind of a tricky one for children. Can you think of, there's, so I'm going to give you, an, and I want the children to, to answer this, because I'm going to give you something that 
Toboggan isn't a word that the children would think of. Um, um, let's think here. I can't even think myself. I'm terrible at this game. I'll just be the first to say that I, I'm the worst in my family. Um, well, let me just say this. A toboggan isn't just something you ride on. It's also something that you wear. It's something that you wear on your, on your head. Can you say it loud? Hat. Cat hat. That was a really simple one. Okay, so we played that. I, our kids very much enjoy it. Some of them more than others, like Kirsten, our oldest. She's much more into words. Um, so then you can do a hinky pinky, and it can be a two-syllable word with a two-syllable word that rhymes. But can you imagine that you could use this in teaching English? You're teaching what? You're teaching rhyming words. Then you can teach about homophones. You can do opposites, um, synonyms, and antonyms. You can you can just create it, and it's fun. It can be fun. Another one, this was an original Dysinger game. <laughs> it's it's kind of silly when I think about it, but my kids enjoyed it. So they would think of someone they know. So like we've been at, at um, this conference, and they might think of someone that they met at the conference that everyone else might have met at the conference, and they would say, I'm thinking of someone who lives in Michigan. So then they'd be thinking of all the people that they met at the conference who lived in Michigan. It's like 20 questions, and then you think of a person. So then it was really fun. They'd always be trying to think of the most remote people that our family knows, um, which we know a lot of people, but uh, some know the, the more remote corners than others. And so just silly ways and little ways that we could keep them going. Um, and we also in our family have the, if you can't work and talk, then you can't talk. If you can't work and move, then you have to, you know, if you can't keep progressing, then we can't play the game kind of thing. So the last one, um, just little languages. So I thought this was original with us again. I thought my husband had come up with this ag language, um, ag, ag before every vowel, sort of like our American pig Latin. Um, so he taught the kids this, what I coined as the ag language, and I'm telling you, if you heard our children talk it, you would think they were speaking a different language. Because when they were young, they could rattle it off. It's not like pig Latin that we speak that is so similar. But they could rattle it off and people were like, what language is that? Um, but it's actually Australian pig Latin. Because my mother-in-law, who is John's mom, is from Australia. And she knew it long before my kids knew it. So... Fun, just different things that you can do to keep the momentum going. Another thing, and I wished we had done this more, but I want to encourage you to do it more, task-oriented, not time-oriented jobs. That teaches children, hey, when I'm done with this job, I'm free. You know, that's motivation. They can really move fast when they know that they um, can have some free time at the end of that. Of course, the job has to be done right. It's not like you can just do it as fast as you want and be done. Um, one more quote. 
Teach the children that because of God's great love, their natures may be changed and brought into harmony with his. Teach them that he would have their lives beautiful with the graces of the flowers. Teach them as they gather the sweet blossoms that he who made the flowers is more beautiful than they. Thus the tendrils of their hearts will be entwined about him. Remember that picture of the carrot? There it is. The tendrils of their heart would be entwined about him. And don't be discouraged if you don't see that at a young age. It takes maturity. It's a slow process. Just because you raise them in the garden doesn't mean you're going to raise spiritual giants at the age of 5 or 6 or 10 or 12. It takes time for those tendrils of love to just keep going deeper and deeper into their hearts. Okay, we have just a few minutes for questions. Oh, when they got to the end of a row? Well, usually that was a, now you're free to, you know, go play in the creek or ride your bike or you can see Caleb, he is still, I mean, his unicycle goes with him any, everywhere. I'm sure some of you have seen him here with it. Um, so usually that's where I was saying a task, a task goal instead of a time-driven goal. You know, it's easier to say, get to the end, and then we will all go and do something fun. What were some of the motivating um, skills you implemented with the children that really were more focused on people watching? They're, they're, they're just really into the observation of others, and it's very difficult to get them to turn, focus on the task, and then do it. Oh. So the question is, how do you get them to be not distracted? Basically, that's what I hear you saying. You know, Mrs. White has a wonderful quote in, in um, oh, is it? It's Christ Object Lessons, the chapter on talents, the talent of time. And she specifically says in there, set a time to accomplish a task. You know, it takes a long time to teach a child to focus. But if you set a time and say, when you have, you know, and set it small, appropriate to their age, focus on this for this amount of time, and then I'm going to give you this amount of time to do whatever you want. You can be as distracted and people watching as you want. So I use the timer a lot. Another question? Okay, managing the schedule in our family. I would say that our family has run on a loose schedule. Um, that schedule means that we eat breakfast and lunch at the same time every day. We have worship in the morning and worship in the evening, especially when the kids were, were small at the same time. Um, now that they're older, it's, it's definitely the evening worship has gotten a little bit more off schedule, if you want to say. Um, but... I found for me with my life, and I just want to say, when you, you have to look at your own life and decide what schedule works for you. I found in my life when I said, okay, from 9.30 to 10, I'm doing English. From 10 to this, I'm doing this. From this to this, I'm doing that. Inevitably, I, my day would be derailed. And this, because of my temperament, I would become very frustrated when I couldn't accomplish my schedule. 
And so what I've just learned to do is to kneel down and say, Lord, these are my plans for today. May they be executed or given up as your providence deems best. That's straight from the spirit of prophecy. I can't tell exactly where that quote is, but um, that is, it's such an encouragement. We can um, be so driven by our schedule that we're not driven by the Lord. And when, when you have a child that needs correcting, how do you put a time on that? You can't, oh, well, quick, it's time for me to do this. No, you've got to give that your full attention at the expense of doing dishes or whatever. So at, when our family worked in the garden, okay, well, I always had these ideas that in the morning we would do school, and in the afternoon, every time I committed myself to a school schedule, my husband would say, I've got to have you. And it would be like, are you serious? I, we were going to do school today. Get out of that mode. I wished I could have been out of that mode. The garden is school. The garden is school. Your children should in, be inside at a desk with books as little as possible, appropriate to their age. So I think it's important and it's good if you can have a set time to work in your garden every day. That works for me now. But when my kids were little, honestly, the farm was fairly all-consuming. And we worked in the garden every day. And sometimes it was in the morning because that's when he needed us, or sometimes it was in the afternoon, or sometimes it was all day. So I don't know how helpful that is. but Okay, one more question, and then we'll stop. If there is one more question, otherwise we'll stop now. <laughs> You'd like to get my PowerPoint. <laughs> I'm happy to share it with you. She just asked if she could have my PowerPoint. <laughs> so, yeah. Any other question? If not, let's close with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, I thank you so much for the gift of the garden. Lord, I ask you to forgive me for the times when it wasn't the blessing that it should have been in my heart. But Lord, I just thank you that you're so patient and you just continued to show me over and over when my kids are little that it is a great blessing. It's not a burden, it's a blessing. It can be overwhelming. We can feel like we're depriving them of things that might be better. But Lord, may we trust you. May we truly believe that the garden is something better. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.